This is Game Designed Unboxed, inspiration to publication on the No Direction Network. Danielle, Denise, and Ben interview tabletop designers on the games they've made. Together, they unbox how a game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, and Ben for Game Design Unbox Inspiration to Publication, Episode 7, Thug Life. Today, we are joined by Jason Serrato, designer of Thug Life, published by Horseshoe Games. Jason is an amazing designer with a passion for minis and another star in the documentary Game Master. Today, we asked him to focus on Thug Life for this episode. Jason, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thank you so much. How did you get into the gaming industry? You know, I, the gaming industry, I guess, was, was always an organic interest for me is probably from as early as eight. Um, I was playing one type of board game or another, starting with a lot of the same sort of seminal games, right, that we don't need to name 100 times. I was probably playing Dungeons and Dragons by 10, 11, 12, if memory serves. And then I was effectively designing games and game components ever since. Oh, wow. So you started young and kept going with it. When did you become very serious about your design? Hmm, That's an interesting question. I would probably say probably with the beginnings, uh, probably around 2008, 2010, when I first started designing Army vs. Aliens and the magnet game Yikers. They kind of happened simultaneously. That was probably the the first time I realized I I could do this. This isn't an issue. I I mean, I was a filmmaker. I've been a filmmaker my whole career and I've been a content creator my whole career. So publishing a game didn't seem like all that much work. Little little did I know. (laughs) Jason, for anyone who hasn't played Thug Life, would you mind just going over how the game plays? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I practiced this so many times, but it has been a while. So Thug Life is basically an asymmetric, um, it's an asymmetric board game. The object of the game is to earn respect. On your turn, you you basically take on the role of a boss controlling a, a gang of thugs in the streets. And on your turn, you get three actions, and those actions are doing bad things to other players, which include like uh, very urban-flavored actions like uh, jump in, hustle, grind. You commit crimes. You you pick fights with other with other bosses. And uh, as you play the game, you earn various types of resources. You upgrade your hoods. And the goal is to earn 13 respect. When you earn that game, I'm sorry, when you earn 13 respect, the game ends immediately. It looks, the game feels a lot like, uh, it's a very take that game. It's very, it's very front loaded with a lot of aggression and very like fast paced action, but it's secretly a Euro because there's no player elimination. You're basically, it's kind of asymmetric engine building where you have this hood, which is your infrastructure. And as you take your actions, you're, building up your guys, you're building up your stash, you're building up your hand, you're building up your hood. And at one point you become like the unstoppable big boss and then you kind of go for the the big win. I like the idea of being unstoppable, Jason. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> could you talk a little bit about what inspired this design for Thug Life? Uh, what inspired you to create this uh, specific game? So I'm I'm of, uh, I guess I'm, I'm of mestizo descent or Mexican-American descent, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And I was born in Los Angeles in a very bad part of town in a city called Pico Rivera. At least in the 1970s, it was very bad. Now it's probably just, you know, bad. But I grew up in really difficult, a really difficult urban environment. And yeah. a lot of the, a lot of my safe spaces were fantasy literature, Dungeons and Dragons, um, board gamings and hanging out with like-minded nerds. Mm-hmm. So, you know, fast forward a hundred years, I, when I was looking for my next game inspiration, my, my co-creator, who's been a good friend of mine, Roberto Anguiano, he, him and I were just always talked about working together on a, on a game. 
And we wanted to create this tiny little, maybe snarky, subversive game at the time. We didn't have the name Thug Life chosen, but to kind of um, kind of tell the street stories that we experienced as young kids, the kind yeah. of the people that we ran from and the culture that we were basically hiding out in libraries and in parks trying to not interact with because we, we were nerds. We didn't want to get beat up. We didn't want to be, you know, get roped into a lot of the street shenanigans. That a lot of our peer, peers were. And, uh, as an adult, as when I started working with Robin, this opportunity or this, this moment kind of presented itself, he started really developing the game into something that was highly visual and much more visual than I originally intended. Mm-hmm. And at that point, and I don't just mean to, you know, throw out some, you know, witty meme, the thug life really shows us. It is almost like the game kind of designed and, and drew itself. Like, you know, oh, Roberta wow. always leaned into very evocative art and very, kind of urban flavor, but also spooky and also very much informed by, by, by nerd culture and and nerd pop culture specifically. Mm -hmm. And when you combine that with a lot of the street memes and street characters and personalities, it just seemed like, um, it just seemed like a game that we were kind of born to make, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Did you worry about creating an adult themed game, especially when it came to later on selling it? Initially, I knew that this was going to be a self-publishing effort. I never, ever had, I never harbored any um, dreams of it being picked up by a, a mainstream publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, I had already, Army vs. Aliens was very successful. I had sold a lot of units. But I wanted to do something that was uniquely my own as an indie filmmaker, having my own voice and telling stories that are unique and specific to myself. In this case, myself and Roberto was really important. We knew that that was not a mainstream um that was in a mainstream sort of a journey. Yeah. But once we started to dive deeper into Kickstarter at that point, I was already kind of like heavily into a lot of successful Kickstarter games uh, and just watching what was possible. We figured this was an opportunity to cre- create a game with our own voice, our own kind of mission statement without any editorial oversight. No, that's great that you decided to take a theme that may or may not have sold, but you stuck with it. That's fantastic. I mean, that's what we need to keep bringing the gaming industry forward. And it's funny because, you know, I know a lot of the local luminaries in Los Angeles game culture. I know them very, very well. I produce content for them. Uh, Many of them are my friends. And I don't just mean influencers and designers and, you know, like retailers, that sort of thing. But specifically, guys that own game shops and famous dungeon masters in Los Angeles and all the kind of guys that have created their own games and maybe, maybe many and who kind of run in, in these same circles. And time after time, the talking point was, why don't you just make it Vikings? Or why can't you make it, you know, like Italian mobsters? Or why can't you make it, you know, <laughs> anything that's not urban? Because, and listen, they were right. I, I knew that they weren't giving me bad advice. I knew that an urban theme in the game space, in a game space so overly dominated, dominated by cute animals and spaceships and fairies and unicorns and, and you know, and uh, happy primary colors that this theme was not going to be popular. We knew that we're not, we weren't done. We understood that we were kind of pushing the rock up, up, up the hill, but you know, I'm stubborn. I'm kind of a glutton for punishment. And I was really passionate about this game. I still am because of quarantine. I haven't been able to sell through all my units. So I have a couple, I think I have like just under just around about 200 left, mm-hmm. but the whole idea was to make a short run, sell out to Angelinos and New Yorkers. And, you know, we sell games in, in Austin, any big urban area, Austin, Portland, um, we move units. Uh, now it's been super slow. And because the streets are literally closed, I can't sell my game in the streets. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you actually, would you set up a table like 
on a street or what do you mean by selling it in no, a street? I was just kind of making it. So in the game, the, the board is called the streets. Um, you have a hood board and the central plane board is called the streets. So you play things into the streets and you actually build out this really cool scene as you play the game that have there's, there's rides and there's uh, and there's like heroes and villains and your, your baseline thugs and all kinds of fun stuff. And it all sits in the streets. And uh, one thing we encourage in the rules is to, to build out your scene. So that was, what I was speaking to, but when I mean the streets are literally closed, I sold, I sold an okay amount of units on Kickstarter, but the goal I, for me was always to have a product that I could sell to um, dispensaries and car shops and, you know, like curio stores in, in Los Angeles and, you know, parts East, parts West, all over the city. I knew this was going to be a West Coast specific thing. So my goal was always to, you know, go to swap meets and street scenes and this sort of thing where that's why I would, that's what my primary that's what my primary demo would be. When I have taken it to cons, there's always this knee-jerk reaction, a, a, a negative knee-jerk reaction to the game. They just visually see it, and this has happened to me at Gen Con, happened to me at you know, PAX, at several different places where people are like, oh my gosh, what is up with that game, right? There's this always yeah, yeah. aversion to it. But then once they see on the table, once they either sit down and play and watch the play happen, and I'm pretty good at roping people in, suddenly we're the loudest table, there's a lot of cheering. There's a lot of screaming. There's a, it's a take that game. So you're naturally going to be set against each other, but it's also, we kind of, we encourage the fun with levity and dad jokes. And, um, we, it, I think it's, I think it's a nice balance, but on the table, it's an undeniable kind of crowd pleaser. People are screaming and yelling and suddenly they're, they're, they're invited into the space, you know, in, especially now with so many social movements that, um, preach, exclusivity. This is not for you. This word is not for you. The space is not for you. This is not your cause. This is not your word. This is not your scene where the game is fairly democratic. If you buy a game, you, you get a little piece of it. So when you take it to a con, you put it on the table and I'm just inviting strangers, you know, old, you know, old women and, and, you know, young children, I do not encourage children to play the game. Um, but you know, sometimes the dad's like, Oh, this is okay. He loves Tupac. It's his favorite thing. Like, okay, let's, let's you're the, you're the father here. Once the tape, when, once the game hits the table, within five minutes, once I get through my how to play spiel, people are yelling and screaming, and um, and oftentimes, and I love this, people are getting mad, uh, and they're asking questions and they're telling stories, and they always ask themselves, "This is my this is my favorite part about the game. Is this okay? I'm having a lot of fun at this game. Is this an okay game to be having fun at? <laughs> is it okay to be playing, you know, effectively gangster?" Um, whether it's in public or private, but in any, in any context, is this okay? I can't answer that question for them, but I think exploring that space is the point and exploring that space and asking hard questions to each other and having hard conversations that you wouldn't have had if you had just gone and played, you know, ticket to ride or, or, you know, Dixit, you wouldn't have asked any hard questions. You wouldn't have asked any questions. You had a fun experience, but now you're involved in something that's, you know, complex and nuanced and you're screaming at each other. And then at the end, everybody's friends. And I absolutely adore listening to, especially again, old people are my favorite demo to, 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 <laughs> to teach the game to making up their names, you know, or nineties babies. They're always the funnest cause they get it. They get all the jokes. They understand the world transparently. I don't have to explain what a drive-by is to them, for example. Um, and it's always, I'm always grinning and smiling inside, even when I'm talking about it to you folks tonight, because it's kind of like, um, the combination of the cringiness, but also like the, the, the embracing of it and of that big soup where people just, it's, as the game becomes transparent and, you know, have like a 65 year old woman start to curse at, you know, some, you know, you know, 
guy in his twenties, you know, screaming her gang name. There's a lot oh to be gosh. said about that. And, you know, people want to talk to me about cultural appropriation or this sort of thing. This is a game experience. I think for a lot of people, it could be cathartic, but at the end of the day, again, it's, it's a personal experience that you should appreciate on your own terms. Although I do guide it when I run demos, I'm not there to tell you what's wrong or what's inappropriate. I don't want people to, I don't promote um, dirty or illicit behavior at the table. That's not what the game is about at all. There's no nudity. There's no overt violence. There's no, um, there's no curse words. Um, and, uh, but you know, people are going to paint it, paint on it. However they want to, when I've demoed in, for example, like Manhattan or Atlanta, I, people got pretty rowdy. There was some, definitely, there was some issues where I was like, Whoa, is this the, the right kind of fun? Uh, but again, it's not for, for me to judge. There's a lot of games in the space that I don't approve of at all. And I think are much, much more offensive, much, much more culturally insensitive and extremely responsible in the space. And a lot of publishers have pulled back when they're called out on this stuff. Um, way, way worse than Thug Life. So I don't like to, I don't really harbor, I don't really like to, um, to hold my game up to, to comparison to anything else, but I will defend it on those terms. No, I definitely could see that. I mean, especially when you think of video games, all content is okay. Like Grand Theft Auto, that's okay. So why shouldn't different themes and board gamings be explored? Especially because it's not, you're telling someone how to feel, you're opening them up to maybe a culture or a scenario they're not aware of, maybe because of where they grew up. I mean, it's, yes. it's an experience, like you said. And it forces you to be, If the, the, here's the one thing that Thug absolutely does that I think is, is uh, incontrovertibly positive it, it uh, clicks you out of your tone deaf space. So, so when I've been, when I've had to have very, oftentimes if I'm at a convention, I'll see people walk by and they'll look at the game with like a ugh sort of, you know, look on their face. And I'm like, I will very vocally and very, um, uh, very vocally and very stubbornly bring them back and tell them, look, you can hate this game all you want, but understand what you're looking at before you just dismiss it. And it's not just there. I'm not just there to curry a sale. I'm also trying to explain to them that like, okay, it's fine to have a knee jerk behavior. If you don't like this game, do not buy it. Absolutely. But understand why it's here. And if you're just, if you're prejudging it because of the color of the characters in the box, that's what I need to correct. Not necessarily in the game space, but in this moment, because I don't think that's okay in the space. And um, that's why I've been, that's why when this is the, it took two Kickstarters to get funding for this game. That's why I was so committed to the game and why we pushed so hard in the second Kickstarter, because I knew that the mistake of it, the mistake of the first Kickstarter was just my overambition, not not the actual uh, merits of the game. That was pretty flawless, Jason. Yeah, you are a professional when it comes to comes to all these things, I think. Would you be able to I, I'm curious to know, yeah, kind of how the game changed from its inception uh, with Roberto and then uh, as you were developing it to to where it is today and, and the kind of playtesters that you had along the way. So kind of two questions rolled into one, um, how the game evolved over time and then who you got to play it and maybe uh, inform some of that evolution. So the biggest change to the game is, was not mechanical at all, although we did, we did I'll answer it simultaneously, I'll, I'll kind of wrap it all into one uh, big answer burrito. So <laughs> as we play tested the game, I was constantly play testing the game doing demos. It's just a secret, not a secret of a lot of designers. We often will do when we demo games or we'll constantly play testing them. Um, I've looked down at, for, for, I do not anymore. I always look down at one player game. Like I love solo player games. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Why would you play a game by yourself? If you don't have friends or you don't, 
you know, what, what, and sometimes the answer is, yeah, I don't have to. I live in Alaska or I live, you know, in, I live in, you know, Bryce Canyon or some crazy thing. Um, and I started to come to the realization that as a game designer, I'm playing the game by myself all the time. And the fact that I live in Los Angeles, I'm fortunate enough to have a, a bevy of cons I could just literally walk or lift to um, in a short time to, to have these folks design, I'm sorry, to have these folks effectively play test with me. So that was the easy part. I was, um, all the cons where I was pushing the game on for both Kickstarters, I was able to refine the game as we went, right? Uh, and in terms of how it changed from the first Kickstarter to the second Kickstarter to release, the biggest changes we made is I took out plastic miniatures. Um, I had the entire game, uh, I had STL files mm -hmm. and um, beautiful, gorgeous miniatures, absolutely yeah. gorgeous miniatures. Probably for about 80% of the, the current game, because you know, we, we opened up a lot of new content on the second Kickstarter. On the first, in the first go-round, I had STLs made for the entire game. All the cops, even the even the miniature pit bulls, which I would actually take out of the game. So those are the two biggest differences. Um, no miniatures at all. And um after a a kind of sad experience with a with a with a adopting a, a baby pit bull, I actually took the pit bull out of the game. Not that it won't come back. But at the time it just wasn't going to work. Um, so I took that out of the game. And, and plus, you know, when we played the game, so I was just going to say the biggest difference was the miniatures. That's definitely true. But when I would play tests with, let's say, cops, or I would play with um, like, like very, uh, a lot of different people of color, like I would have play test sessions in Atlanta that I would have like a lot of black gamers at my table, or I had a couple of play test sessions at the Tijuana the Tijuana, what are they called? The Tijuana RPG Fest. Okay. I think that's the name of it. I, I remember it for forgetting it. But at both those times, they would give me feedback that was very, very insightful. And it wasn't the kind of feedback that you'd expect. Like, you know, I remember hearing from these Las Vegas cops. I ran for all these Las Vegas cops and they adored the game. And I'm also having the Chappelle moment where I'm thinking like, is this the wrong kind of enjoyment? <laughs> are these guys enjoying this game for the wrong reasons? But at the end of it, this one guy who, who I would find out later was a retailer. He actually bought a couple, bought a couple of cases um, in the second Kickstarter. He says, listen, if you're taking feedback, I have a really big note for you. I'm like, you fire away. He says, you, don't, you should put a black cop in the game. And he was absolutely right. The idea that I wanted the, I wanted the experience to be fairly democratic. Um, there are plenty of, of all kinds of colors in the game. But I made, a, I made a very deliberate choice to not put any white folk on the front cover of the, of the game because that wasn't what the game was about. Yeah. So, um, and that kind of like set people off sometimes in the wrong way. Other times in, you know, in, in, they had the complete opposite reaction, like, holy crap, I've never seen the front cover of a board game do that. I'm not sure that's entirely true, but, um, I haven't done the research either, but, but that was the long answer. You know, like I took out miniatures and I made a few, um, a few tweaks here and there with the content that I just thought helped the game land better. And, you know, we designed, we designed the board game along the way at, at conventions and at, at my re weekly game nights. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. When did you guys decide that you were going to kickstart it? Cause I know you did start up horseshoe games. What was the process there? Like how long before you started it, decided we're going on Kickstarter. Tell me a little more about it. So the first Kickstarter we prepped for about, I would say we prepped for about six months and um, that wasn't enough time. And we, we made a few mistakes, primarily the miniatures, I guess wrong with the market in that case. And then we took off, we took 
about nine months off. And then we started to ramp back up. We did probably three, three to four more months of uh, buildup. And then we launched it. And then we delivered just about 15 months later. The calendar okay. might be a little off. But from the beginning of the first Kickstarter to the time it was delivered, it was about five years. It was a long time. Much, much longer than I wanted or anticipated, simply because the first kick, by the time from, from the beginning of the early concepts of the game, we probably went through three iterations before we landed on an asymmetric take that game. That was about a two-year process before we found a game that we liked, worked, and that we wanted yeah. to move forward we wanted to move forward with. Then we began the pre-Kickstarter phase, then the Kickstarter phase, and then shortly thereafter, uh, we, you know, we kind of, you know, licked our wounds and came back with the second one. So I would say probably three years on the first and two years oh, on the wow. second. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it was a very, very long production cycle. Not something I'd want to repeat again. That definitely makes sense. I hear you on that one, Jason. I've uh, happened to run my own Kickstarter campaign, and it was a ton of work to say the least. But what's cool is that, right, you know, you did relaunch and you met success with it. I would be uh, like to know too when in the process did game master come up um in in the footage uh in the documentary it seems to be kind of between the two kickstarters um how are you approached to be featured as one of the main designers in it and could you talk yeah like uh in the timeline about where that that fell into place for you so i was talking about all the cons i believe it was probably strategic con that i was put on their radar they, I was demoing, the Kickstarter was just about to go live. It was a few weeks away. And um, gotcha. I was, and I, I, this is not an exaggeration at all. The, the ladies love Thug Life. At conventions, it's always like young women and even old women who just <laughs> kind of flock to the game. Um, and I just feel it's because here suddenly they're, they're invited to the party. They can play some kind of, they can play this urban experience that they're usually told, like, it's either unladylike or, you know, you're the wrong color or you're at the wrong party. You can't this is not for you. You cannot have this, right? So Thug Life says the opposite. I mean, you, you buy a game, you play, right? Um, so at cons, there'd be a lot, especially in LA, they'd be like, oh my gosh, what is this? And that's, first it's just this incredulity. So when Game Masters found us, it was because there was five ladies, one of them standing on top of a chair. A woman who's become a very close friend of mine since then, um, just had a quarantine baby not too long ago, standing on top of a chair, yelling at her oh, homegirls. And, but you know, it's all in good fun, but like <laughs> the personal kind of vendetta of the game really got him hot blooded. It took over very fast. Again, it was all in good fun. And that's when, you know, the, the game master crew kind of came up to me. They were doing some kind of B-roll sort of stuff. They're going, can you tell us a little bit more about your game? They did this impromptu interview, none of which actually made it to the, to the movie. It was just kind of like a pre-vetting sort of process. And then I remember Jimmy and Charles, is that correct? Jimmy, Charles, and um, a couple of their girlfriends all came over to one of my game nights and they specifically wanted to play Thug Life and Thug Life only. Oh, that's good. And uh, we did that and then we played a couple other games and at the end of the day they said, listen, hey, would you like to be involved in this, um, in, in Game Master? And that was kind of the first step. And they followed us around throughout the pre-production or the pre-Kickstarter process, the Kickstarter process, and then when the game failed, their idea was, well, that's unfortunate, um, but they continued to shoot us. We did like a post Kickstarter interview and, you know, it was kind of like, I think, I'm, I'm not sure how they positioned it in the movie, 
but I believe it was kind of like a dark beat. I think it was like a dark second, second act <laughs> beat. Um, over time, as a filmmaker myself, I totally saw where they were going and there's no judgment here. And, and I had no, no uh, guarantee how they were, I was going to be portrayed or how the game is going to be portrayed, nor did I care. Um, it was up to them to tell their story. I did far be it for me to, you know, curate my own sort of, um, my own sort of narrative. They know what they're doing. It's, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't kind of, I had no access to their process, but as time went on and the, we were wrapping up for the second Kickstarter, it was very clear that I was, they were really kind of rooting for me to be successful this time because then they would get this kind of Rocky beat with me. I could be like the comeback kid in the, uh, in the film. And that's how I was positioned. And it, it just made sense, but it was, they, they were with me for about two years. I would say probably from, the, you know, six months before the first Kickstarter and what, and probably two or three months after the second. Wow. So they just kept popping in and out of your life. Yeah. And it was really, really interesting because I've always been very intimidated by documentaries as a filmmaker myself. That's like the forbidden zone. Like I can't, the commitment, the not knowing where you're going, mm -hmm. like where's the story taking you? Is this really what we want to make? I can't, the anxiety of that is just too much for me. I, I, I would never, I, I need, I'm a narrative guy. I need to know what, where my, where my journey ends before I start it sort of thing. So whether it's, you know, a great opportunity or network opportunity or paycheck or fantastic story or super fun, I've, I've got to know ahead of time. So documentary is super scary to me because you're, you're in the dark for so long before you can carve out your through lines. It's so funny how you said that you weren't sure how you get portrayed because in the movie, from my view, I kind of took you as this is the person who wants to make a product, tried, failed, but is going to continue trying. And honestly, like that's a huge part about game design. We don't talk about, and this is one of the reasons we started this podcast, we don't talk about all the rejections you get or the failed Kickstarters or when you're pitching and something doesn't go right, or even you get a game signed and then the publisher gives it back for one reason or another. It's good to explore right. that side of it. And I thought they did a really good job of, I mean, and yeah, using you to show how that works. <laughs> and it's funny because I think I have like this inverted career because my early game ventures were highly successful. I met mainstream success with all five of them, all six of them, excuse me. And I was like, this is easy. This is such a great side hustle. It's such easy money. I submit these designs and, you know, I, I, I'm making, I'm making promotional materials and I, you know, I, I'm just signing off on proofs and it goes away to China. And then six months later, checks come. This is awesome. I'm going to do this forever. I'm going to quit my day job. So how hard could it be to do it on my own? Right. So, so with Thug Life, it was just this, it was just this very grueling process where we were swimming against the waves constantly. And to a certain extent, we still are, but I, but I'm really looking forward to the time where I could actually introduce this game to the non-hobby space. That's the thing that I want to do. And I'm, and I'm pretty confident just based on our, our success at Consent, I'm just going to fly through the rest of my inventory and then I'll, you know, I can, I can move on because I am working on other games. I'm helping each other. I'm helping others out with Kickstarters. I continue to create game related content. I continue to play games and create games, but I still, I can't really write the final chapter to Thug Life. Not that I'm looking to do that, but I can't, for me, selling out the rest of my inventory got shut down because of the pandemic. So I can't call it quits until that happens. No, that definitely makes sense. As a whole, what was your favorite and least favorite experience in this journey of this design? No question. The best part of the experience 
was the interpersonal relationships, like the new, I'm a, I, I could probably say all these things, the new friends, um, business, you know, business relationships and, uh, kind of, I'm, I'm a, I'm a human first. Uh, let, me, let me try that again. Um, I'm kind of a humanity first. Oh, look, I did a little Andrew Yang thing there. I'm, I'm a people person. I'm good with people. What's the matter with you people? I love, I love people and I like uh, social interaction by far. Thug life was the most fun I've ever had at a con demoing any game, whether it was my game or somebody else's. The, the laughter, the anger, the lashing out, the, the difficult conversations, the wonderful conversations, the excitement for the game. Because at cons, you know, you play a lot of meh games. When you go to like independent game meetups or you do the, the kind of, you know, uh, hi, we're indie playtesters and we're doing a thing. That stuff can be really fun and really exciting and really inspiring. But game to game, it's you, you don't find a lot of gems. So to be that gem at a con was a really fantastic experience because of the people that I met because of it. People like, hey, I want to be in business with you, or I love your game, or just like, who are you? Like all in the whole wide range of it. The the most difficult part of Thug Life was probably not the hard conversations and not the pushback, but watching like the hate kind of flow in on different socials. Yeah. Was really tricky to navigate. And it wasn't, it wasn't because it was like hard to bear. Like I've got a thick skin and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a big boy. I can, the, the criticism isn't what was bothersome. The hate in and of itself was, a was a, what was bothersome, but the way it kind of pulled down the mask of the board game industry, uh, it kind of, it, it took it down a notch. It, it took it down a peg in my, in my heart because I was like, wow, here's this space. When I, as, as a gamer growing up, Board games was such an inclusive space. You know, I was playing with people that were 40 years older than me and, you know, kids in wheelchairs, people of all makes, creeds and colors. I met such a wide variety of people growing up as a, as a, a gamer in the hobby space specifically. And there was never, it was never no. It was never a space that wasn't for you. It was such a, a kind of warm and inclusive space. And yes, I might be talking to a small microcosm because, you know, I was a kid and I couldn't, you know, my reach wasn't that yeah. far socially. But as I grew up, I, uh, that's the kind of pathos I kept in, you know, in, in my soul, if you will. And you believe in that kind of stuff. But I always kept that with me. I always kept that home fire burning. And the hardest part about Thug Life really was the reveal that that wasn't entirely true, that there was a whole wide swath of gamers out there that didn't share that kind of, um, that kind of uh, ideal, right? And... I don't think it's the majority, you know, you always talk about the vocal minority, but I also kind of learned that, you know, from social and from the Kickstarters, this, this thing that I, I, I still believe to be true, this interesting metric when it comes to engagement and text feedback, right? If somebody says a thing, whether it's true or not true or mean or nice, there's a hundred other people back there thinking the same exact thing or just non-vocalizers. And as some of the hate started to come in and I, and I did take it, I just, just, I, I took it head on and I addressed people. I didn't let this stuff stew. I addressed it immediately, but it started to come in. It was kind of this, kind of this uh, ugly underbelly of, of the hobby space, which I hadn't prepared for it. Maybe I was naive, um, but I hadn't prepared for people really upset because there was no white people on the front cover, right? Or really upset that this theme would even exist in the space or really upset that, Somebody was selling this game to their children, even though we clearly never did. It was always it was always vocalized and always illustrated and always. Yeah, I mean, you have the emperor uh, mature on it, so. And you know, it says "18 to Life" on the side of the box, which I think is very clever, and I love pointing that out. Um, 
So, you know, but it, the idea wasn't that they were right or that, that um, they just, they just, a lot of these, a lot of these, a lot of these times uh, people just say things that they don't, they just want to be heard on the internet. They're not going to get famous for saying something nice. Right. Um, but one of the most hilarious of those comments to me was always like, gosh, you know, as soon as people find out this is a white guy, they're going to be super, super mad. No one's ever going to support this. I'm like, I, how much browner do I need to be? I don't understand. They just weren't doing their homework. They didn't really care. They were just like knee jerk hating the game because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't their, it wasn't their version of a game that should be in the hobby yeah. space. No, I, I've had a friend that designed a game called Orphans to Ashes. And in the game, you're like mm-hmm. playing either as an evil wizard trying to take the lives of orphans because fire, it's like a waste of their life. So it's like you're trying to kill them before the fire. And then the other character in the game is trying to save the orphans. And so that was like, it was clearly a joke. It was based off of a comic book series, like a web comic. And got a lot of bad <laughs> comments sent towards him where it was like, it clearly isn't actually what he feels. He does not feel like an orphanage needs to be set on fire. Like he was just right. taking an IP, making a game and put it out there into the world. <laughs> yep. And suffering for bit, it a little bit, right? So, um, yeah. or, or at least you know, t- 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 taking his beats. Uh, it'll, it'll make you stronger. In, in Game Masters, and I always talked about this with Charles, we had a day. It was my favorite day in Game Master. Um, oh my gosh, so many Game Master stories too. So I had this great day with Charles where post Kickstarter one, he's like, hey man, can we do a day where I ask you hard questions? I'm asking you some hard questions. I'm like, oh my gosh, please do. I've been practicing them for 30 days on this Kickstarter, so let's go. And he he spent the day giving me some of the really difficult questions and the difficult criticisms that came through to us from, you know, our very socials during, during the camp first campaign. And, um, I addressed them all and I addressed them head on and I gave him the answers that I also gave on social media. You know, I, 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 it wasn't hard for me to speak with my actual voice and address people intelligently and compassionately, even if they're very, very upset. Um, it's, it's not only Kickstarter 101. I just think that's the way good humans should behave, right? I shouldn't respond to knee jerk anger with knee jerk anger. I, I mean, that's where, where is that? The fighting fire with fire thing only works when you're like life's on the line. Like, I don't understand why you would just do that in normal context. There's other, you know, you get a lot further with sugar than with salt. And um, when I answered the questions that Charles had was rebroadcasting to me during the interview, um, he's like, dude, you handled that really well. I'm like, well, one, I had practice. Two, I was sincere every time I answered one of those questions and they were really fun. Like it really made me think, right? There was questions that were really tricky, but the only thing that I was like, ah, oh, he never put those into Game Master. And I'm like, those are such good questions. Like, oh my gosh, they were such good answers. I was so happy with that, that tit for tat. In particular, when I was giving him my response, I'm like, oh, I remember that person. Like that was backer, you know, 126. You know, I would remember these conversations very intimately because I, I would spend time to address them responsibly and publicly because a lot of them were valid questions, yeah. you know? That is, I mean... As you know, with being a filmmaker, not everything makes it and it's hard to make those cuts, but that's unfortunate. Oh, totally. So in summation, Jason, with, with everything that you've experienced with Thug Life the entire way from start to finish, can you maybe answer us uh, just or offer one more piece of advice to 
designers maybe starting out, whether it is with a maybe more controversial te- uh, theme or not, but just something that you learned that you uh, would l- love to have known earlier, hmm, kind of in two, maybe your that, game that, design career. The, it was a two-part question, so I would address them in two different ways. Let me- yeah, you really do like to sandwich yeah, it. <laughs> Great. I'm really good at those, apparently. Go ahead. Yeah, I like to put things apart. <laughs> I like to put them back together. You know. Um, so let me let me approach it this way. If there was one thing... If there was one thing I could tell to young game designers, it's um, learn to listen to, make sure you can listen to voices outside your own. Understand that you're the, mm. you're the visionary here. You're the, you're the artistic inspiration. You're the creator of this thing, but you're creating it for someone else. It's like any sort of expression. If you don't have an audience, you don't, and no one's ever going to hear your story, right? Um, that's a very, I think that's a very important fundamental thing for anyone in the creative space and especially a storyteller, right? If you don't understand who the audience is, you can, your story's going to oh, yeah. deaf ears. Um, and that story might be a literal narrative story, or it could be like an economic story. Look, you lost money, dummy, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but when it comes to the design space specifically, and this is related, and I think it, it kind of answers your double pronger pretty well. It's if people criticize your expression, listen to them. Don't ignore them because of your ego or because it's you think it's the right way or they don't know what they're talking about. It doesn't matter whether they're right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Always keep your mind open when other people are giving you feedback, criticism, or just straight up insults sometimes if you can handle it. Always listen to others when they're giving you feedback. But when you're, when you're addressing that feedback and you're trying to solve for those problems, make sure that you solve those problems on your own terms. So... The idea is, you know, the, to 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 give you for to give you an example, like a lot of folks would criticize Thug Life because they didn't think it was, you know, an appropriate game for X, Y, and Z. And I would take that feedback, and I would, you know, I would lessen the blow with with pretty colors, humor, and sort of pathways in the game and the game mechanics themselves to make it more accessible for people that might either be offended or did, don't like medium weight games, whatever the story was. But I wasn't listening to the way they said to fix it. I wasn't going to make it Vikings, right? Um, I understood that the game needed to be more accessible, but I needed to also do it in terms that were loyal to the game itself. So, you know, listen to others, but always trust yourself. I definitely get that. Well, then, Jason, Beautiful. just to kind of wrap it up, you want to tell everybody how to reach out to you and also if you're working on anything that people should know about? I am. Here, I'll, I'll push to a couple new games. I'm up to a lot of things, but let me let me keep it in the game space. Um so if you want to if you want to follow Thug Life and you want to get learn a little bit more information about the game, you can go to Thug Life space hyphen space the game on Facebook. That's kind of where we live. We're not as active on the social side, but you can go to Thug Life space hyphen space the game. Not what we want; it's what we got uh, to just basically get in touch with me or find out more about the game. If you want to order the game, you can go to thuglifegame.com. We are there all the time, and we're you know happy to engage with you. And we have some really sweet beautiful pieces of art that we, uh, we had on the Kickstarter as extras and you could find them there. Um, in February, I'll be launching a game called prosperity. Yes. It's a pun, uh, prosperity at the end, like the, like the tea <laughs> that you drink. It's a beautiful, eco-friendly, hundred percent recyclable, eco-friendly game. It's super durable, super cheap and coming back to Kickstarter in February. So watch out for that. And that is at, that is on prosperity.com, like P R O S P E R I T E A. Dot com. We also have a prosperity 
uh, group on Facebook and the art that Al, Al Gonzalez is a designer. I am not. The um, the work he's done on the game is absolutely fantastic. It's a beautiful expression and it's uh, just super inspiring just to see it, not to mention play it because it's a kind of a coopetition game, which, you know, a lot of gamers aren't really used to like, oh my gosh, we're working together. Yeah, but we're kind of not. So those two games, you know, thuglifethegame.com and prosperity.com, <laughs> that's where you could find... Uh, find my current game efforts. Well, awesome. I mean, definitely check it out, especially with a coming in February. Uh, thanks for joining us for this episode of Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 7, Thug Life. And thanks again, Jason, for joining us. Great meeting you guys. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And for anybody who's looking to find me, you can find me on Facebook at or DMR Creative Group or Twitter at Creative DMR or Instagram at Token gamer and that's g-a-y-m-e-r and you can also find ben on facebook as ben moy and your friend ben moy designs board games this has been another episode of game design unboxed inspiration to publication if you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts check out nodirectionpodcast.com join us next time